Hey everyone, today I bring you a very special episode of Strong Reception because today I am blessed to have not just one expert guest, but two. These two folks are going to help me track the surprisingly long journey of a particular pair of songs that were joined together in the middle of the last century and had a huge impact on American pop music. Later on in the show, we'll be hearing from acclaimed author Tom Clavin, who I talked with about his book, That Old Black Magic, Louis Prima, Keely Smith, and the Golden Age of Las Vegas. Tom and I dive into Prima's version of Just a Gigolo, I Ain't Got No Body from 1956, and how the sound and style of that song were a true innovation for its time. But right now, I'm honored to have a very good friend on the show who, like me, is a very knowledgeable, albeit amateur scholar of pop music history, Philip Emiot. Philip and I are going to trace the origins of Just a Gigolo, which not many people know started life as a somber Viennese tango written in German in the 1920s. Philip is one of the most astute music fans I know and is also a multi-talented guy. He's an actor, improviser, voiceover artist, director. Philip, thanks for being on the show today. Uh, lovely to be here. Uh, I'm really excited. I, I cannot claim to know half of the uh, music history ephemera that you know, but uh, happy to be here nonetheless. Philip and I are here to talk about an iconic song, a song that came out when Philip and I were kids, or at least I thought came out when we were kids, and that song is Just a Gigolo, I Ain't Got Nobody. It was the spring of 1985, and alongside Sue Studio by Phil Collins and Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears, U.S. radio airwaves and MTV were tirelessly blasting out this song. takes me back yeah that's a good one uh that is david lee roth's just a gigolo which peaked at number 12 on the billboard hot 100 in june of 1985 and it was on the charts for 17 impressive weeks philip what do you remember about this song <laughs> uh, it just uh something about this song just makes me immediately smile um but i think that's that's sort of uh, the david lee roth the diamond dave magic um i remember the the video first and foremost um mm-hmm. i think uh you know the 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 song it just is is so upbeat and so um ironically kind of positive um when when you actually <laughs> dig into the lyrics you know diamond dave was was just such a an outsized personality and uh you know if if this were a game show and you asked me directly i would say yes i did know that was a cover because i remember my grandmother walking by while while the video was on and saying what is is he singing just a gigolo and i'm like yeah isn't it great and she's saying and she said that's an old song <laughs> so <laughs> yeah i i knew there was history behind it but um not not as much history as uh, as uh, there turned out to be yeah my memory of that song is, and it's interesting because I didn't grow up with cable or MTV, so I never saw music videos from the mm. 80s or in a lot of the 90s too. I like, just didn't have it. But my sister had the 45 vinyl single of this song, which was on the same disc as uh, California Girls. The sleeve of that 45 where he's sporting angel wings. Mm-hmm. 
as a as an eight year old or seven or eight year old, whatever I was, like the parts that were my favorite were where he would go, like just the gibberish ad libs. Yeah, I really had no idea until many years later that David Lee Roth's "Just a Gigolo" was almost a carbon copy cover of this song from 1956. Just a gigolo, and everywhere I go, people know the part I'm playing. This is the version of Just a Gigolo that was one of my dad's favorite tunes from when he was a kid. It was a smash hit by New Orleans-born bandleader and trumpeter Louis Prima, accompanied on vocals by his wife, Keely Smith, and a crack band put together by saxophone wonderkind named Sam Butera. And this song developed out of their standing room only live show in Las Vegas in the 50s at the Casbar Lounge of the Sahara Hotel. And it became so successful for Louis Prima that he had the lyrics inscribed on his headstone. <laughs> so, though my mind was blown that David Lee Roth had not come up with this song, <laughs> I might hazard a guess that even my dad didn't know that Just a Gigolo was a song that went back as far as the 1920s. Maybe he did, I don't know. Uh, and that it was originally written in German about a World War I veteran fallen on hard times. I also wonder if he knew that I Ain't Got Nobody was actually a totally separate song from Just a Gigolo. Which was a revelation to to me as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think most people, Louis Prima melded these two songs together so seamlessly. So uh, perfectly, yeah. Yeah, that many people, myself included, thought it was always one song. But it turns out that the I Ain't Got Nobody part is a totally separate song that was written and came out around 1916. So it goes back even further than Just a Gigolo. And um, the, the the segue is is incredible. It really does make it seem like the, the, the two songs were always one. And it's a real testament to what Prima and his band achieved. Uh, he kind of makes it seem like there never was a, a history of these songs before that. Right. I, I, ain't got, I Ain't Got Nobody just sounds like the chorus of just a gigolo totally which, which essentially has no chorus so it hmm. yeah i don't know if it's a scent i mean the as i understand it but you know i don't know if it was just instinctual or they were like hey if you play these in the same key they fit together nicely but it, it's it's so seamless in insofar as it doesn't even sound like another song exactly coming in at yeah. the chorus yeah um so Perfect. we're going to we're going to take a little walk through just a few of the many versions of Just a Gigolo and I Ain't Got Nobody that led to this super catchy medley that most of us didn't realize was a medley, mm-hmm. but it's the one we know and love. Uh, so I'm going to start with this one. That is German. Yeah. This is from 1929. Uh, the singer here is a man named Richard Tauber. Uh, and as I mentioned, Just a Gigolo started out life as a slow, somber Viennese tango with the German title Schöner Gigolo, Arma Gigolo, roughly translates to Pretty Gigolo, Poor Gigolo, 
and the original German lyrics were first penned in 1924 by a Moravian librettist named Julius Brammer, who at the time was based in Vienna. And his lyrics were later set to music in 1928 by Italian composer Lionello Casucci. It's a very international team here put this song together. The song became a smash hit all over Europe, popular with bands in every major city. And the German lyrics tell a very different story from the English lyrics that later became famous in America. The German words describe a decorated cavalry officer who served in World War I, a war hero who could have his pick of the girls. Paraded victoriously through the streets in his gold-braided uniform, women were, quote, flying right to him. But now those days are gone, and he has fallen on hard times, looking for a way to make ends meet. He now haunts the dance halls he once patronized as a young man and sells his dance skills and handsome looks to any woman willing to pay him for a twirl on the floor. The chorus of the German version translates roughly to Pretty gigolo, poor gigolo, think no more on the times when you were a hussar, covered in gold braid, proudly riding through the streets. Your uniform is gone, your love has said adieu, beautiful world you hang in tatters. Though your heart breaks, put on a laughing face, they pay you, and you must dance. Oh, man, that's heavy. Yeah, it's a it's a tango, but it's also a you know the a ballad in a way. It's so yeah. such a different vibe. Yeah, it's it couldn't be more different from what we know the song for. Sure. Yeah, and it 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 you know it reeks of that era of um, you know post Great War Germany trying to sort of dust themselves off and and you know get back some some dignity now that they're kind of you know their economic sanctions it's a it's a pretty dark mm-hmm. time there yeah and uh you have this war hero who uh who's now just haunting clubs trying to trying to make a fast buck mm. you know listening back to that 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 version it it does underline my very unpopular theory that german is actually a beautiful language sure <laughs> or it can be yeah well mozart thought so, so. good for him yeah um, thank you, Mozart. Yeah. Um, I have a note here. Like, so what is a gigolo anyway? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a man who sells dances and compliments or is it also a guy who's selling sex? I, unclear to me. Yeah. I, owing to my, to my grandmother's <laughs> opinion of this song, I feel mm-hmm. like she, she, uh, felt the latter, um, mm-hmm. That, okay. You know, that she th- thought that the song was somewhat risque. Now, my grandmother was a bit of a prude, so I'm sure she probably felt the same way about the Louis Prima version. Okay. But, uh, you know, David Lee Roth certainly plays up the uh, that angle. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe he was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he might have actually worked. Well, I think he had his own reasons for recording <laughs> it, but yeah. it's uh, Well, I did look up in Merriam-Webster. According to Merriam-Webster. David Lee Roth is, is in Merriam-Webster? The word, the term David Lee Roth is defined as <laughs> gigolo. gigolo. No, um, <laughs> gigolo is a French origin word first coined in 1922, meaning a man supported by a woman, usually in return for his attentions. Interesting that this word was only two years old when the lyrics were written. Um, but the other definition they give is uh, a professional dancing partner or male escort. Right. Still leaves the door open yeah. a little bit. Okay, so in 1929, based on the tremendous popularity of Schöner Gigolo, 
the British music publishing company Chapel & Co., bought up the publishing rights and commissioned an American lyricist named Irving Caesar to come up with a version in English. Now, Caesar was already an accomplished New York songwriter who'd co-written the song Swanee with hmm. George Gershwin. And he'd also written a slew of other standards, including T for Two and Sometimes I'm Happy in the 1920s. I don't know what his... I don't know what the process was for translating. I don't know if he already knew German or someone helped him. I, I don't know. But his English lyrics to what then became titled Just a Gigolo took out any reference to the cavalry or Germany or France, omitted the words pretty or poor, and instead distilled the song down to its core, a man who's disappointed in his career and the way his life has turned out. I'm just a gigolo. And everywhere I go, people know the part I'm playing. Paid for every dance, selling each romance, every night some heart betraying. And that last line is totally omitted by Louis Prima and David mm -hmm. Lee Roth. There will come a day when youth will pass away. What will they say about me? When the end comes, I know they'll say just a gigolo as life goes on without me. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate to that sentiment. <laughs> like, um, whew, man, I, I've never been a gigolo, but there have been so many times when I've believed I've fallen so far from the potential <laughs> I started out with, you know, like I'm living, I'm life that I'm ashamed of. And like, what do people say about me? Like, uh, no, I agree. I, I, I think this, this song in some ways describes my own existence at times for sure. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, not to, not to get too hung up on diamond Dave, but you know, I think, uh, his version and probably the Prima version are, are a response to living life as an entertainer. Um, you know, okay. and, and, you know, selling yourself and your talents out there. That's really interesting. Well, and it, you know, being an entertainer has always been sort of a charlatan existence as well. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a, you know, a, a direct parallel. So, yeah, it's interesting to think about like what, you know, it really took off in America in like in 1931, there were like a million versions, hit versions of Just a Gigolo in the US. So I wonder like how a depression era audience was taking this in. I want to play a bit of the Bing Crosby version. Yeah, now this one, weirdly, I have not heard. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for I it. really like it. He, this is uh, from March of 1931. Now, this is the only English version I've heard that includes this opening verse. Irving Caesar also wrote this opening verse, but almost no one else recorded it. Was in a Paris cafe But first I found him he was a Frenchman, a hero of the war. But war was over, and here's how peace had crowned him. A few cheap medals to wear and nothing more. Now every night in this same cafe he shows up. And as he strolls by, ladies hear him say, If you admire me, hire me. A gigolo. So yeah, it's it's still slow and somber, still full of pathos. And he's the only American singer who's recorded it that I've heard that pronounces it gigolo. Still puts that very French sound on it. And so, so at this point in history, there's still no hint of the upbeat tune it would become known for much later. Now, a week after Bing recorded that, Louis Armstrong recorded his version. 
Now, it's also, you know, slow, but it, it, it kicks up toward the end and becomes more of a dance song toward the end. The beginning is interesting because you get a little solo, a rare vibraphone solo by a soon-to-be legendary vibes player, uh, Lionel Hampton. Even just the, the presence of Louis Armstrong there changes the whole feel of it. I mean, he's you know, he was the king of jazz, and, and already that you know the backbeat starts to be felt. The I Ain't Got Nobody uh, medley obviously doesn't exist yet. And I think it's not until you speed up the tempo that that even really becomes an option um, to cross that song over. But he, you know, but it's already a sort of more contemporary sound. like when you play it after hearing Bing Crosby's version in, in in Bing's version it's there's no jazz in it right he's I he's think, I don't get he's yeah. a crooner which you know Louis Armstrong was not well, he was a brilliant vocalist but wasn't a crooner mm-hmm. of, of that you know um of the Frank Sinatra Bing Crosby kind of mold but yeah I think Bing is it's interesting because Bing once you set down that that prologue that intro He's he's not really singing the song in first person. He's singing the mm-hmm. song from the point of view of someone who meets someone who then right. sings it in first person. Right. And if Louis or others omit that intro, then automatically it sort of becomes maybe more like the original. Although I don't know if that if the intro in that version sets it up in the same way. But there's definitely a sort of it's a weird perspective shift of I met this yeah. I met this guy and here's the story he told me versus here's mm-hmm. my story. Yeah, the original German, it's sort of like you're reading a novel version right. of it. It's like one day, you know, once upon a time there was this guy. Yeah. And now here's what, here's his monologue right. on page Which is six. somewhere in between that perspective shift. Yeah. 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 But that's very interesting that like, you know, Bing Crosby, even though, of course, Bing Crosby could sing jazz and did sing yeah, jazz. Yeah, no, talented. Yeah, immensely talented vocalist. Yeah. But yeah, you're right that, that Louis brings the jazz band, the dance band feel to it. And 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 a sense of, yeah, and a sense of immediacy, I think, is, is new mm. to it. Yeah. Uh, I want to just at least briefly touch on this one. Uh, this is interesting. 1932. Max Fleischer, who is an American animation pioneer, put out a short film called Just a Gigolo that's part live action, part cartoon, and features Betty Boop. And it's uh, really bizarre. (laughs) Uh, The only live action human featured in it is a French-born theatrical star of the time whose name was Irene Bordoni, who sings the song about four times during this eight-minute short film. I will will Uh, reserve my comments until after the clip. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this that that doesn't age well. But here's the beginning of it. (laughs) 
So here is Irene Bordoni opening the film, uh, singing pretty much to camera in French. And this was going out to American audiences in movie theaters. Why they decided to do it in French. So now this is cutting to a cartoon featuring very drunk dancing animals in tuxedos and uh, nightclub attire. This scene is kind of so debauched that it's clearly a pre-code cartoon. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. The the second time we see Irene Bordoni when Betty Boop introduces her and uh, we cut back to her and she sings a song in English this time. And she there's a there's an animated bouncing ball yeah. sing-along. She sings the song twice more. Uh, I guess they were really pushing this record, <laughs> <laughs> trying to sell the sheet music. Yes. I don't know. And her again, her performance is great, but it's it's back to that super slow storytelling kind of ballady, you know, torch song tempo, torch song. And yeah. ooh, between that and the the animation breaks, yeah, it's not. Uh, it doesn't hold up, as you said. <laughs> It it might be the Star Wars holiday special of nineteen of nineteen thirty two, without a discernible brand, right? <laughs> uh, okay, so I want to jump ahead to the forties now. So by nineteen forty five, Louis Prima had long been a successful band leader, trumpet player, and singer, winning audiences over with his musical chops, his boundless energy, and his high octane band. He was enjoying a run of hits, including uh, songs called My Dreams Are Getting Better All the Time and Bell Bottom Trousers. Uh, in 1945, he released a single of Just a Gigolo, 11 years before recording his signature version in 1956. Prima's take on Gigolo here is still slow and sentimental, but it had a new special addition to it. He decided here to combine Gigolo, which was by now almost a 20-year-old song, with an even older song called I Ain't Got Nobody. And there's nobody cares for me. And to my knowledge, this was the first time the two songs were put together by anyone. If anyone out there knows of a, of a precursor to, to this, please let me know. I'll sing a sweet love song all of the time. It's definitely got more of that uh, 1940s jazz swing arrangement going on. Um, and then... He goes into I Ain't Got Nobody uh, in 1945. I had no idea he had put these songs together so early, um, but I guess it didn't catch on. <laughs> but now this would be a good opportunity to segue into talking about I Ain't Got Nobody, which is, for me, a distinctly American song uh, written in either 1914 or 1916. There's a little bit of a conflicting copyright records uh, issue going on. But one of the earliest versions of I Ain't Got Nobody was recorded in 1916 by uh, Marion Harris. It's got lyrics by Roger Graham and music by Spencer Williams. Uh, I Ain't Got Nobody, parentheses, and Nobody Cares For Me. It's much more of an American blues number than the European-influenced gigolo. It enjoyed tremendous success in the 20s and 30s. And here's a version I want to play uh, from blues legend Bessie Smith that was recorded in 1925. There's a saying 
Yes. Yeah, so that's Interesting. that's one version. So go ahead. And it's a much more complex song than than just a gigolo. Hmm. You think I, so? Well, in terms of the changes in it and the sort of like the, the song sections, hmm. <clears throat> you know, I counted it at, at least four, I think. Um, yeah, just a gigolo has a sort of, you know, has its pattern that that takes a long time before it, you know, before it loops again. But mm-hmm. you can hear why in the verse of this song, why at Louis Primo or his arranger um, or Keely Smith, you know, would mm-hmm. would hear just a gigolo in in that song. So I'm curious how that how that evolution came about. Yeah, me too. Still something I, I would love to know. Um, and I want to now play. I, here's another version I found that I liked from 1927. This is Sophie Tucker was also a big singing star at the time. And she had a hit with the song as Sophie Tucker and Miff Moles Molers. Really good band name. She's gone and turned me down. So this is a couple of years after Bessie Smith, and we're getting more of that sort of dance band feel to it. Um, my, f- uh, oh, uh, I want to mention that Louis Armstrong also released a version of "I Ain't Got Nobody" in 1929. But I want to play my favorite version. This is just my personal taste because I think this was the first one I found uh, when I discovered that "I Ain't Got Nobody" was its own song. <laughs> this is from 1935, and this is the great Fats Waller recording as Fats Waller and his rhythm. absolutely love this version of the song because it is and i can now i'm hearing like oh this must have given louis prima some ideas right and sometimes it's you know just a just a gigolo um just a a short (laughs) a short uh you know chord progression or even one change from one chord to another that can snap a sort of you know all of a sudden another song gets stuck in your head and i you know i think it's only when you get to these more upbeat versions of that of i ain't got nobody you know mm-hmm. when you can start to imagine like oh i see how those songs got mashed up um, mm-hmm. and it's funny that the that just a gigolo got pulled um you know got pulled to the up tempo version instead of the other way around yeah, I'm I'm one day I want to know if anyone out there knows, I want to know the origin story of how Louis Prima d- did decide to put these two songs together into a medley in 1945, which is 10 years after that last song we heard. Yeah. Um but it was a decision that would pay off big time come 1956 when the latter combination of Just a Gigolo and I Ain't Got Nobody became a national sensation. And just a gigolo everywhere I go. 
So this is 1956, recorded at Capitol Records in Los Angeles. Now this news version, as I said, was arranged by Sam Butera, who infused a little bit of the newfangled craze sweeping the nation called um, rock and roll. That walking bass line. Yeah. Um, and you can really hear it when, when the backbeat comes in, too. Right here. Like, it's still jazz, but it's still got something new going on to it. Yeah, but it still has a swing. take a chance with me, I so bad. Like, I could hear this being... A, there's a little bit of Fats Domino here, perhaps. <laughs> really? There's Sam Butera playing, and he starts to really cook it here. There's a, there's a real immediacy to this. You can tell they're having fun. Prima's shouts during it really helps. While the Prima plays, let's go over to my conversation with best-selling author Tom Clavin, where we'll learn more about the 1956 song's cultural impact and its significance in the lives of Louis Prima and his indispensable yet underappreciated musical partners, Keely Smith and Sam Butera, and how Las Vegas was central to putting this great music on the map. Then Philip and I will wrap up Gigolo's journey with two more unforgettable versions that came in the 70s and 80s. My esteemed guest today is author Tom Clavin, who, in addition to being a veteran journalist, has penned nearly 20 books, four of which have landed on the New York Times bestseller list. Earlier this year, he published his latest nonfiction work, Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and The Vendetta Ride from Hell, which has gotten all-around fantastic reviews. He's written biographies of Joe DiMaggio, Roger Maris, Ted Williams, and I've asked him to talk with me today to discuss one of his non-baseball biographies, a book from 2010 called That Old Black Magic, Louis Prima, Keely Smith, and the Golden Age of Las Vegas. Tom, thanks for talking with me today. Oh, my pleasure. It's good to talk about Louis Prima and Keeley Smith, always one of my favorite subjects. The 1956 recording of Just a Gigolo, I Ain't Got Nobody by Louis Prima represented a, a resuscitation 
of Louis Prima's career in a way, uh, and what became a sort of return to show business success after he had a bit of a fall from grace. Um, and he became so associated with that song that the lyrics are inscribed on his tombstone. Yes. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about how Las Vegas and this song helped resurrect Louis Prima's career? Well, Louis Prima, Louis Prima's career actually was resurrected before he recorded that song. He probably would never would have had an opportunity to record that song if he hadn't already been uh, back on top, so to speak, and, and could pick and choose material. Uh, when, when the 1950s began, Louis Prima, who had been one of the biggest stars in America, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so big that during World War II, when there was you know, definitely an anti-American sentiment because of Italy being aligned with Germany in the war, Louis Prima remained hugely popular, and he was somebody who was very open about his Italian roots and would sing Italian mm-hmm. songs and have that, but... By the by the you so know, you're saying there was an anti-Italian feeling in the oh, U.S. Well, definitely, the and during the during the war, mm-hmm. uh, certainly not as intense as the anti-German feeling, but but the anti-Italian sentiment was there, and Louis Prima flew in the face of that. He didn't back down and say, "Well, I'm going to hide. I'm going to hide the fact that I'm Italian." He was very proud of his Italian heritage, mm. and uh, you know he had he'd, he'd been born in New Orleans, and which had. You know, it was one of the biggest Italian enclaves at the turn of the you know nineteen hundreds. Was mm-hmm. most people don't know that would never think of that. You think of maybe French or Spanish, but it was a huge Italian enclave in in New Orleans. But at the beginning of the fifties, Louis's career had really nosedived, and uh, the big band era was over. Uh, he hadn't had a a hit in a while, and uh, here he was traveling around to two bit clubs wherever he could make a few dollars with. His new wife, Keely Smith, who he had met in Virginia, she mm-hmm. was pregnant. They they were bumping around on back roads. It was a, really an awful situation, and and uh, it was a chance to go to Las Vegas for just a couple of weeks for a gig at a, at a lounge act that in a place really nobody else would take it for that for that two weeks. That he and Keely went out there and they started performing and sort of making it up as they went along, and suddenly they were a hit. And it was at the beginning. I think I'm going to say this is about fifty. 253 and uh as the 50s went on they just got bigger and bigger and bigger so going back to when you where you, where you question uh, uh talked about just the gigolo uh that was part of a huge prima renaissance which he you know he didn't orchestrate for himself it was because of keely smith that he had this whole second act i mean i think it was f shots Fitzgerald said there's no second acts in american life that was mm-hmm. definitely not true about louis prima yeah yeah you you mentioned that in your book yeah um, yeah that's so yeah can you talk about keely smith for a minute um i know she they got married uh, after she auditioned to be in his band in 1948 i believe and then they got married about five years later yeah they well Louis was was as was often the case with him when he met somebody he fell in love with was already married, uh, and so when when he his band was performing in uh, in, in Virginia uh, in this coastal community where Keely lived, and she had been a, she had grown up a, a big Louis Prima fan, and so when he was and his band which at that time was smaller because of things were downsizing for him in the late forties. Uh, he announced that he was looking for a new female uh, a singer for his band, and and she Keely was in the audience and she was wearing a bathing suit. She just come off the beach and she was all <laughs> right up on the stage in her bathing suit. But they, somebody oh. managed to lend her some clothes and and so she already knew a lot of Louis songs. 
So it wasn't like they, you know, come on up here and audition for me and sing, you know, uh, Stardust. You know, okay. you get up there and sing a couple of Louis songs, and and she had this wonderful voice. I mean, untrained, but this wonderful voice. Yeah. And Louis was enormously impressed, and he basically hired her on the spot. Now she was still underage, uh, and Louis was married. So when they left the next day in this caravan of cars, uh, Keely's mother went along as a chaperone. <laughs> Yeah, what was what was the age difference there? It was a couple of decades, right? It was at the time that they met. I think Keeley was nineteen, which was still underage at that time. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and Louis was probably in his. He was born in nineteen ten. That would put him in his late thirties. Mm-hmm. It was close to a twenty year uh, age difference. And uh, but you know, Keeley was not only infatuated, but she was, she was ambitious. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that was something that came out later in their, in their career together, but she had ambitions of her own too. And certainly she saw, uh, getting out of the, the place where she had grown up as, as an opportunity to make something out of her life that she otherwise would not have had. Okay. And so they, um, at, at the time that they were offered this, you said like very brief, what was it, two weeks at the Sahara mm-hmm. uh, in Las Vegas, which was, you know, at the time, these were still sort of new hotel casinos, right? They were, they were, these were fairly recently built. Yeah, Las Vegas was, I mean, the Las Vegas we know today was nothing like it was in, in, in the early 1950s where you had, right. you had some casinos. I mean, there was still this, this hangover from the Bug, Bugsy Siegel dream. That uh, you know was portrayed in the Warren Beatty movie Bugsy, where he went right. out to Las Vegas with his dream of his dream was realized, although it was you know after he he took a bullet in the head. Uh, <laughs> so he, if he Sometimes only that's what it takes. If he only ducked at the right moment, maybe he would have seen his his dream come true. Hmm. But uh, but yes, a lot of these these hotels, these casinos were new, and in um, the ones that were there existing at that time, you had the main room, which is where your headliner. But there would be a lounge act, and the lounge act was basically who's available, who could fill that spot, so that when gamblers were coming off the main floor and wanted to have a drink or a little something to eat, there was also some kind of entertainment for them. It was not supposed to be top flight. So mm-hmm. Louis called up a fellow he knew in Las Vegas and said, I'll take anything. And this is what they had a couple of weeks as a lounge act. Mm. And in the book, Keely Smith gives a lot of credit to a young saxophone player and arranger who joined the band around this time uh, named Sam Butera for really bringing the act together musically and bringing his guys up from New Orleans to play in the band. Well, Louis had a couple of guys who were backing him up, and Keeley. And they did their act for a couple of weeks in Las Vegas, and they were actually invited to come back. Uh, and But they were told the act needed something else, it needed some more pizzazz or whatever, whichever way you want to word it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, maybe a sax player would really do the trick. And Louis contacted his brother, Leon, in New Orleans, who ran a club in New Orleans, and asked him about sax players. And it was Leon who said, you got to hit this guy, Sam Butera. He really is, is a terrific sax player, and he's he's an up-and-coming young guy. And you know, I'll ship him out there. And so Sam Butera made his way out to Las Vegas. And when he joined the band, that was like the last piece of the puzzle of, of a band that became known as the wildest. Um, mm. You know, Sam and... What is it, The Witnesses? Well, he had, he, it was Sam Butera and The Witnesses. So he had like that that group that was like a subgroup of the Louis Prima, Keely Smith, Sam Butera band that, that got nicknamed The Wildest in Las Vegas because... 
that's basically what once Sam and his effervescent outgoing uh, personality joined the band and you had Louis Prima with his effervescent outgoing personality, but it's, but kind of in a different way, you know, more the vocalizer and occasional trumpeter. Sam was the occasional vocalizer, but the full-time sax player. And mm-hmm. then you had Keeley, and Keeley was like the Bud Abbott to their Costello. You <laughs> right. know, she was she played the straight man a lot of times in that act up there, and 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 part of their dynamic was trying to make her laugh. If you can make Keeley laugh, you know, by this time the audience is in stitches. You've really accomplished right. something. So Sam was was a great, really a great entertainer, and one of the enjoyments I had with working on 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 my book was to I think give Sam. A good amount of time and credit, like Keeley herself did, uh, because Sam really made a difference. He he took that band to the next level of excitement and and dramatics and humor, and he was with them for all their years in, in Las Vegas. And it seems like, um, from what you describe in the book, um, Butera, what maybe because he was younger or just had his ears open to other things, like he wasn't shy. He was bringing a little of that rock and roll backbeat into th- in things because he was he was arranging songs as well he right? was i mean sam as he got more experience himself uh uh he became more adept at arranging songs and picking songs he was younger so you're talking about somebody who had his ear more attuned to what was happening in contemporary music you know he was aware of when people like bill haley and the comets came along and some of that been little richard and some jerry lee lewis and mm-hmm. some of those some of those great early rock and roll entertainers and and Sam would, would hear about this, and he'd be curious about it, and he'd pass it on to, to Louis. We, you know, we got to do more and more of this stuff now. You know, Louis was always kind of an innovator, but like many entertainers of his generation, you know, he had to be. He was somewhat hesitant. He was somewhat disdainful uh, of that sound. But he started working in it more and more, and it actually, you know, he started to get credit, which he was very happy to to accept. He, even though it was at first a surprise to him for being one of the pioneers of rock and roll. Uh, Mm. Some of the backbeats that he used and for some of the, the, the the singing that he did and the, the, the raucousness of the band and the spontaneity of his music. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was, so that was, he was considered an influencer of rock and roll. And once, once that was made clear to him, he said, Oh yeah, you're right. (laughs) Uh, Right. And apparently the, the act uh, in Las Vegas at the Casbar Lounge uh, became so popular, like it was standing room only after a while. And, and all the, uh, the the real mark of, of greatness sort of came when they noticed that all the other stars who were performing in Las Vegas would come to see their show after they were done. Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, the other stars in Las Vegas, and you're talking about what eventually got called the Rat Pack. They weren't called that in mm-hmm. the mid-50s just yet. Uh, but Sinatra and Dean Martin, you know, these emerging talents and, and a very young Sammy Davis Jr. and some of the others. Uh, the thing about Louie and Keeley is they didn't start till midnight and they would go until dawn. That was mm. part of their uniqueness. And first of all, it was part of how they got the job because they're willing to do it. A lot of other acts would not be willing to, to start at midnight and be up all night and be when the, you know, the, 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 the sun's coming up and you're just finishing up. So, what would happen is they started to gain more and more popularity and, and people were piling in to see them is that when Sinatra would be done, when Dean Martin would be done, you know, name some of the other very well-known uh, Perry Como, some of the others who were done mm-hmm. in Las Vegas in their show, 
it, they might be done at three or four in the morning. Well, you know what? There's still two or three hours more of Keeley and Louie and, and Butera and the band playing at the Casbar Lounge. So yes, they would, they would pile in then and watch uh, the, the rest of the, of the performances. And, uh, and they were mesmerized. I mean, the, they, they'd be coming back over and over and over again. You know, I mentioned in my book, some of the young, uh, you know, young Johnny Carson would come see them and ended up getting into sort of like heckling matches with, with Louie and, <laughs> And yeah. and uh, they they were fascinated by this because they themselves were not as nearly as uninhibited as Louis and Keeley and that whole band. And in in the nineteen fifties, would gigolo have been a, a polite word? <laughs> like would it, would it would it have had some kind of sexual connotation, or was it just sort of oh this is a really old song and it's just an old standard now and it kind of doesn't mean anything? You know, that's the reason why I think that's a really good question is because. One of the things that made Louis Prima popular all over again in the 50s was that a lot of what he did in, in music, and certainly true of their live act, was wink-wink with the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of innuendo. There was a lot of, between him and Keeley, uh, there was a lot of sexual innu- innuendo. And a lot of that got, they were able to do that a lot more than other maybe acts or other men and women on stage would have done because everybody knew they were married. So they gave them mm-hmm. that they gave him that extra rope which would to hang themselves. And, Got it. And so with just a gigolo, it was like if somebody else might not have gotten away at that particular time with just a gigolo, Louis could get away with it. Yeah, he's just a gigolo. That's Louis Prima. He's a he's a he's a uh, he's a a rascal, you know. And right. and and uh, he, he runs around, and that was okay. That 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 enhanced his appeal as 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 opposed to making it more difficult for him to get airplay. It's it's so interesting that um, Keely. She has such a gorgeous voice. She doesn't really shine on Just a Gigolo like she does in that old yeah. Black Magic. Well, I think she was still finding her way. You know, by, by the time with Just a Gigolo, which, which you know, in 1956, uh, she was not a novice. I mean, they had been performing in Las Vegas for, for a couple of years. But mm-hmm. as a singer as and as her own personality and as her own talent, she was still emerging and a big part of that was because of you know the 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 idea right from the beginning of their collaboration was that she was the second banana to Louis. She could even be considered third banana to Louis and Sam. Uh, but yeah. as as the time went on, and also she started to record a lot of it done produced by Louis to give him credit there. He really mm-hmm. was the biggest factor probably in making Keely a star, other than her own talent. Um, mm-hmm. And so. Uh, by the time you get to that old Black Magic, which which they reported in 1958, she's becoming a full fledged star as in her own right as a solo uh, a star. I mean she she was in a, she was starring in movies. She was she was in Thunder Road. With, you know she was the female lead to Robert Mitchum, and the song mm-hmm. that that she did from that movie Whippoorwill became a huge fit. Most people don't know Robert Mitchum wrote it. Mm, no, I yeah, Robert Mitchell was actually quite a talented songwriter, and Whippoorwill was a mm. huge hit for Keely Smith, which he wrote. In addition, you know, to, to direct, the, sort of co-directing and starring in the movie Thunder Road, uh, she was she was you know doing duets with with Frank Sinatra. She was she wasn't headlining herself. She wasn't going to go that far. Louis wasn't going to you know let 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 her that free uh, from his band. But mm. but uh, in that old Black Magic, you, you you're hearing a much more confident, experienced singer. Absolutely. Is there a reason we just sort of don't, most people just don't know her name? 
like maybe we think they should? You know, a couple of reasons. One is that was she was, uh, you know, from the beginning, as I mentioned before, supposed to play a secondary role to Louis. So they were, uh, so he got most of the attention and spoke basically for her during pretty much the entire time that they were a huge act in Las Vegas. But Louis was was the the top man. He was he was the leader of the band. He was her husband. You know, we're talking about the 1950s, where it was not unusual for husbands to speak on behalf of the wife, uh, and that's that's what he did. He was also, you know, this this strong Sicilian male personality. So, and yet, even with all that, uh, and partly because of Louis. She did become a very successful solo recording artist. She had she had a number of hit albums in the late nineteen fifties. So, but her her moment in the sun, so to speak, was kind of brief. You know, she 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 didn't have the uh, you know by the time they broke up in nineteen sixty one, Louis went on to have you could even call it a third act in his life, and Keeley did not. You know, she she sort of shut herself down and 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 actually left the entertainment business for a couple of decades. And so the combination of her, you know, her tenure as a a major solo recording artist being brief and then basically just leaving the business. I mean, she didn't make a comeback until the late 1990s. The the sort of musical uh, journey that (laughs) this medley that Louis created of Just Gigolo, I Ain't Got Nobody, it, it carried on to other artists uh, down the line, including a 1978, the Village People put out a version uh-huh. of it, a disco version of it, and then, of course, the most famous version after that was uh, 1985, David Lee Roth, who hadn't yet quit the band Van Halen, quit or fired, I'm not sure, but um, he was in Van Halen. He decided to put out a, a four-song EP in 1985 of covers one of which was california girls the other one was just a gigolo i ain't got nobody and he though it's the instrumentation is totally different he pretty much sings note for note what louis was doing he does and and david lee roth is also in a position where he he was leaving a very popular band and he wanted Mm -hmm. to apparently establish himself i'm sure there was some ego involved i can't tell you why i mean you probably know this better than i do why, if he had this desire to try and establish himself, did he choose a song like that, which was, <laughs> you know, how much of his audience would have ever known a song like that existed? But that really... I can tell you no, I it, but, but it kind of speaks to maybe David Lee Roth. they got to give him credit for it. He, yeah. he became, for some reason, maybe, maybe it was him, maybe somebody suggested it to him, and he said, yes, here's a song that has potential that you could do something with it and as you pointed out, it wasn't like he did a much innovation with it. You know, the instrumentals, okay, but 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 he does, as you say, he he sort of sinks, lip syncs <laughs> Louis Prima in a way, and it became a hit all over again. And Louis Prima, by that point, had been, by the time that that song came out, was dead for like about seven years. Uh, you know, it would have been interesting if he had still been alive. Uh, he would have been in his mid seventies then. Uh, who knows? He would have had a fourth act. <laughs> Mm-hmm. In his life and career. Interestingly, you point this out in the book. Um, Sam Butera was still alive. Yes. And he was none too happy about David Lee Roth's version. You quote, and you, this is from your book, that Butera groused to anyone who would listen 
after the David Lee Roth version of Just a Gigolo, I Ain't no, Got No Body was released in 1985, Butera said, he copied my arrangement note for note, and I didn't get a dime for it. <laughs> well, that was one of Sam's regular beefs, justifiably yeah. in a lot of ways. I mean, Sam was was a, extremely important, as we, as, as we said earlier, uh, when Sam came to Las Vegas and hooked up with Louie and Keeley, that's when the band took a huge step forward to become a popular piece of entertainment. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and it, as years went by, there would be people who would copy Sam's arrangements for, 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 but you know, you don't get royalties on arrangements. And it's funny that he also said, uh, there wasn't an act in Atlantic city or Las Vegas that would do that song out of respect for me. Yeah. I love that line because, uh, first of all, it may be true. Uh, <laughs> it's probably an indulgence by Sam to think that, but there's probably some truth to it that the, you know, in that, in a somewhat incestuous world of Las Vegas, where a lot of the same people played the same clubs years over years after years, you know, you, you, it would be kind of like an insult to Sam to just steal it. And, and it's hard to hide it. You can't mm-hmm. go in and make it hope it won't get discovered. So there's probably some truth to that. But I think also is another way for Sam to, to want to pat himself on the back and want other people to know you know, what his contribution was, not only to the Louis and Keeley band, the, the, the wild, wildest, but, but, but to, you know, American music. Okay, and so now Philip Emiot and I will round out this gigolo journey and talk about two more noteworthy takes on the song that infiltrated the zeitgeist in the latter half of the 20th century. So uh, Prima, Prima died in 1978, so he was, he never heard David Lee Roth's version, which came out in 85. Shame. But I do wonder, what's that? I said, that's a shame. It is a shame. Uh, about six months before he passed away in early 1978, the village people put this out, and it is also a combined medley. Oh, he just, let's <laughs> go land. And it's also worth noting that the Village People version that appeared later that year, 1978, in a movie starring David Bowie and Marlena Dietrich called Just a Gigolo, in which Bowie plays a Prussian World War I vet who goes gigoloing in a brothel uh, run by Marlene Dietrich. Uh, Dietrich sings the song. I want to put sings in quotes because it's it's kind of speak slash croaks most of it. Kind of her thing, yeah. Yeah. um, And the movie was considered so bad that Bowie called it his, quote, 32 Elvis Presley movies rolled into one. Oof. Now that's I think that's unfair to Elvis movies if it was that bad, but yeah. <laughs> um wow. did not know about that one either. That's yeah. I just learned about this. I watched a five minute clip. Yeah. Uh it's yeah, it's awful. Oh it's awful. okay. Well then it was right right rightly eighty sixth by someone. Yeah. And mm. what what year was that? That's seventy eight. Seventy eight. And the village people's version of Just a Gigolo appears on the soundtrack. Um so it appears somewhere in the movie. I'm not sure. I'm going to guess the closing credits, but I have no idea where it belongs. Yes. Um, 
so why don't we just wrap this up with um uh with Roth's version here. So this is again came out in 1985 and um I believe David Lee Roth was still technically the lead singer for Van Halen. Uh and this was his sort of I don't know if his parting shot or it, it, it came out shortly before he left the band. Well, yeah, I mean they I think as as I understand it they were still they were not officially broken up. He had gone off and this this appeared on his first EP. Mm-hmm. Crazy from the Heat, mm-hmm. um, which strangely does not contain the song "Going Crazy," um, okay, the, with the chorus "Going Crazy from the Heat," um, but it's this was the second single after um, "California Girls," mm. so that and and that EP I think contains at least one other cover song. Uh, yeah, I think it's all covers. Uh, yeah. I know there's a version of um, Coconut Grove by The Lover right. Spoonful, and I forget what the other song is. Easy Street. Easy yeah. Street. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that tension is also reflected by the fact that in the video, when it cuts to the rock band, the guitar player catches on fire. <laughs> I did. I missed that. So that's what is that a reference to? I it's, think it's a jab at Eddie Van Halen. Okay. That's right. The video does show, it does um, parody a lot of other videos of the time or pays tribute yeah. to them. The Cindy Lauper, Girls Just Want to yeah. Have Fun. Well, it all takes place in the Dave TV studios. Listening to it now, like I can, I'm just thinking of how I heard it as a kid and having no idea that someone did this song before him. Right. And I just thought he just wanted to do a Muppet like song. So it's like something that would have been writ- written for the Muppet show <laughs> and saying like, blah, 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 blah. that's just part of it. You know, that's just like a fun thing to do. Well, I could, rec- I could recognize it as a song that didn't feel of its time. Um, so when I was told that it was an old song, that it, it made sense. Um, you know, it has a, it still has a swing rhythm and for sure improvisation, you know, from the band. I wonder if people did think he had gone crazy putting this out at the same same time as Everybody Wants to Rule the World is at the top of the charts. <laughs> and Brian Adams' Heaven. Yeah. Maybe he was crazy from the heat, but it's great. This was great. I yeah. really enjoyed going through these songs with you. Uh, same here. Man, what a journey this these two songs have made. Just goes yeah. to show you, there's like I always learn so much when yeah. I uh, dig into the history of a song. Yeah. I want to thank my good friend Philip Emiot for for being an incredible color man here as our through our walk through 20th century history and just yeah. gigolo. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode in which you probably heard the word gigolo more times in an hour than you will the rest of your life. I hope you had fun. I know I did. And I learned so much putting this episode together, which is why I do this. Um, And hey, if you know something about the history of Gigolo that I don't, please feel free to let me know. Uh, Meanwhile, this has been Strong Reception with Eli James. If you like what you're hearing, please leave me a nice rating. Remember, you can subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your pod stuff. And that way you'll always know when a new episode is live. You can also go to my blog at votinginthedark.com. And I will see you next time. Thanks for joining me.